Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Just a few weeks ago, we started a new series on the parables of Jesus Christ. And the parables are incredibly interesting because, uh, and they're much more nuanced and complex than when you first start reading them. But parables are stories that were used by rabbis to teach. And in in a parable, you have this ironic twist, an ironic turn, that if you were a listener to the parable in that day, it would shock you, it would shock the hearer. And so you have to listen for that ironic term because that's what's going to be, that's where the punchline is actually where uh, the, the shock is going to be and the lesson is going to be. Now, this particular parable is very, very famous. If you've ever been in a church or grew up in a church in any way, you've probably heard this parable at some point or read about it. I used to think that this parable was read like an allegory. I used to think that It was about a man traveling from the city of God in Jerusalem, going down to Jericho, which was considered a very, very dangerous place. And so, because he's going down the hill, that he's going from a holy place to an unholy place, and as a result, um, he gets into a lot of trouble. That's what I thought this parable was about. You know, um, there's a reason why it's called the parable of the Good Samaritan. There's no Good Samaritan in this story. He's supposed to be the focus. But that's what I thought the text was about. But if you, and if you read it that way, or if you've ever read it that way, then you're going to miss incredible truths, very, very significant truths that Jesus was intending to teach the hearers at that time and us today. This text is about love. It's about the heart of God for his people. And you're going to have to brace yourselves, but we're going to walk through this very quickly. There are five points today. This is a record. The impossibility of love the heart of love, the marks of love, the motives or the intent of love, and the power to love. Five points. Very anti-Presbyterian. The the impossibility of love, 
the heart of love, the marks of love, the intent or the motivation to love, the power to love. Here's a lawyer, and he's really an expert in the law, thus he's called a lawyer. He's an expert in the law of Moses. He's a very religious person. And in verse 25, he comes to Jesus and he asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Which is a really interesting question because the very nature of an inheritance is that you do nothing to receive it. You do absolutely nothing. It's given to you. But here's this lawyer, this expert. He comes to Jesus and he says, I need to know. I need a list. I need you to tell me what I must do. What he's really saying is, what are the requirements that God has given to me so that I could be accepted if I follow it? So that I could have his favor if I, if I live it out? So that I could have life? So that I could have eternal life? And Jesus' answer, he says... In no uncertain terms, you need to love. You need to love perfectly. Jesus is saying here that love is everything. That's what he's saying in this text. In the Dead Poets Society, one of my favorite movies growing up, uh, you have these uh, high school students, these high school boys in a boarding school, and they enter into poetry class, this mundane poetry class. And you have Robin Williams, who plays the teacher, John Keating, And he begins to teach him. And through his teaching, they are incredibly moved, motivated, inspired. It bursts their creative uh, experience in life. And he begins, as he starts to teach, he says, you know, we read, write poetry because we are members of the human race. And a human race is filled with passion, love. And, And medicine and law and business and engineering, these are noble pursuits necessary to sustain life. But poetry, beauty, Romance, love, these are the things that we stay alive for. In other words, what Robin Williams, John Keating is saying is exactly what Jesus is saying here. He's saying the loss of love will give you no more reason to live. But the hope of love, the certainty of love will make you want to live. Because when you're experiencing love, When you're giving love and receiving love, that is the essence of the human condition. That is the essence of human life, the experience in itself. It's the one thing that separates humans from all other beings. And what Jesus is saying is that about love here is that his idea of love goes against everyone else's, the world's view of what love really is. On one hand, love is the essence of the human experience. But on the other hand, on the other hand, We have such a skewed sense of what love is today. Our love as a result is not genuine. This text begins with this lawyer, this expert in the law, and he wants to test Jesus, it says. And the word test here is a very, very negative connotation, negative side to it, because the word connotes trap. This lawyer wants to trap Jesus because the lawyer believed what most religious leaders at that time believed, that in order to get access to God, in order to be acceptable to God, you have to obey the law. You have to be good, and you have to be good perfectly. You have to be good well. And the ones who are very good are the ones that God loves. That's the way you get to heaven. That's what he believed. That's what everybody, all the rabbis in his day taught. That's what many of us grew up hearing and learning. How do I know that I'm going to enter into God's kingdom unless God gives me a set of things that I can abide by so I can check off and know that I can enter into the kingdom. But Jesus here, here's Jesus. He says, you can get into the kingdom now. 
you can be accepted today. Jesus, on top of that, he's not friendly necessarily. He's not, he's not always uh, affirming the Pharisees. He's not affirming these experts in the law. Instead, he's affirming, he's friendly, he befriends, he's close, he's intimate with people who the religious folks consider completely dishonoring of the law. They don't obey the law. And so this scholar is incredibly suspicious of Jesus. He wants to expose Jesus as a fraud, somebody who's dishonoring the law, somebody who's encouraging licentiousness because, gosh, if the law is not what matters, if your obedience to law is not what gets you into the kingdom, then everyone's just going to run amok. So he uses this conversation as an intent to trap Jesus. It's a bait to trap him. How's he going to answer? And how does he answer? Instead of giving the lawyer the answer that he wanted, Jesus comes back with a question. Verse 26, he says, what's in the law? What does the law say? Now, it's typical for rabbis in those days to say that the entire sum of the law comes down to two principles printed in your call to worship this morning. Two principles. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and love your neighbor as yourself. The entire Ten Commandments, if you, if you look at the Ten Commandments, they all hang on those two laws. The first set of Ten Commandments all deal with loving God. You will have no other gods before me. Do not take the name of uh, the Lord your God in vain. It's all about your center. It's all about your core, what's inside, what you do when you're in, in your private moments with God. What do you love? Your private affections. But the second set is all about loving your neighbor. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery. Do not covet. Jesus knew that this expert, what do you think he's going to give him as an answer? What's in the law? The expert's going to give him the sum of the law. So Jesus says, yep, that's it. Do it. Do it and you're going to live. That's what God wants. In fact, you have to do it perfectly. The expert says, what must I do to enter? He says, okay, you want, you're an expert? I want you. I'm an expert of the law. That's Jesus. Do it perfectly. I take the law far more serious than any of you. And the only way, the only way to gain access, you want to be saved by doing? You have to obey the Lord perfectly. You have to obey the law perfectly. And the only way to obey the law perfectly is to love perfectly. The lawyer, it's a lot more than he asked for, the lawyer wanted validation. He either wanted validation, you know, affirmation, or he wanted advice. He wanted, you know, you're doing it. You're doing it well. Go ahead. Keep doing what you're doing. Or he wanted, uh, you, you need to tweak some things in your life. Here's a list. Follow this list. What Jesus is doing, he wants you to conclude that, gosh, it's not about affirmation. He's, I'm not going to get affirmation, and I'm not getting a list. My old paradigm my old worldview isn't enough. Whatever solutions that I had that I brought with me to the table are not working here. Clearly, Jesus is on a different level here. The expert wanted a list. He wanted limits. He wanted boundaries so that he could grade himself. But Jesus shows the lawyer, and it crushes this lawyer. He says, you don't love. You don't love. What are the limits of love? Why does Jesus go that direction? You know, either there's a God that you created, a God, a God that you created, or a God that created you. If there's a God that created you, then you owe him everything. 
He's given you everything, because that's what he says, and you owe him everything. Everything that you are is from him, and you owe him everything. Otherwise, you're just an accident, and you owe him nothing. Either God is your father, or an amoeba is your father. But if there is a God, and he gave you everything, then you owe him everything. If you've ever been in love in your life, you know what it means to give everything and to receive everything. And that's why the two greatest commandments, the sum of the law is so valid even now. It's what drives us. Love is what drives us. If you've ever been in love, you know. Love is what drives us. Love is what drives you and love is what you demonstrate. What has the highest place in your heart Is it your career right now in this stage in your life? My career is the thing that's most important to me. That's what you're going to love with all your heart and soul and strength. And the implications of that, that's how you're going to treat your neighbor. You're going to step all over your neighbor to get ahead. That's what you're going to do. Is it a relationship? Oh, I know love. I am in love. Is that relationship the thing that's gripped your heart? Is it vacation? You want, you want to retire. That's what you're going for in life. That's got the sum of your heart and soul and strength and mind. Is it the way you look? Your youthfulness? Is it your sexual appeal? Whatever it is. The Bible teaches that whatever it is that has the sum of all of your affections, that thing is your God. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. It means nothing comes before God. Nothing absorbs and delights your thoughts more. Nothing absorbs and thoughts your affections more. Love the Lord your God with 100% of who you are. That means that your entire person is integrated. Your motivation, your thoughts, your emotions, your affection, your will. Everything that you are, everything that you do, Jesus says you are to turn that love to God. And then, in turn, love your neighbor as yourself because that is the character of God. That is who God is. He doesn't say love your neighbors more. He says love your neighbors as yourself, which means, you know, first love the Lord your God with all of your affections. Then I want you to meet the needs of the person right next to you with as much strength, with as much joy, with as much effort as you would want to meet your own. With as much time, with as much thought, with as much energy as you would meet your own. I want you to meet the needs of your neighbor with all your energy, with all your joy, with all your time, with all your thought, as much as you would meet your own. Now, we sit here, logically, we'd say, nobody loves like that. Who loves like that? Nobody loves like that. But that's what the law is after. You want to learn, you want to go to heaven by doing? That's what the law is after. Why? Because that's how God is. That's the character of God. That's the the grace of God. That's the glorious goodness of who God is. And he built you. Your original design was to love in that way. That's you. We were created in his image. Jesus says, love perfectly. Love the Lord your God perfectly. Love your neighbor perfectly. And this man, you know, what Jesus was going for is, is, is he would want us to say, you got me. I give up because I can't do this. That should crush you. The law should crush you. You should be broken by this. You should, you're supposed to say, I can't do this. This is impossible. How am I supposed to become acceptable if I can't do that? I cannot do that with my heart and my soul and my strength. 
That's the first point. It's impossible. What's the heart of love? Verse 29. Verse 29 is so critical. And it's the key of this text. Because the lawyer says he wanted to justify himself. He doesn't say, I can't do this. He actually goes the opposite. He wants to justify himself. He says, but then who is my neighbor? Give me that list. I'm going to give it my shot. The expert in feeling inadequate about Jesus' command, he should be crushed by the law. Instead, this is why he tries to justify himself. You know, the word justify means to make just, to make yourself right, to make yourself, the word righteousness is acceptable. So this man is trying to make himself acceptable, make himself feel good about himself. And so, you know, I'm going to give you an example. Here you have a friend. He makes tons of promises all the time, lots of promises. Every time he makes a promise, he breaks the promise. He comes to you day in and day out, and he says, no, this time I'm for real, and he makes a promise with you, and then he breaks the promise. Time and time again, in cycles, he makes a promise, and he breaks the promise. He lacks integrity. And finally, one day he comes to you, and he says, you know, I want to make you another promise. And you say, I can't trust you anymore. I just can't trust you anymore. And he says, why? Why can't you trust me? We all know the answer. Here's why. If you were to take it in, if you were to say, you know what, I trust you, either your friend has to make good on that promise or you have to absorb the debt of the failed promise. Either your friend has to pay the price of the promise or you have to pay the price of that promise. That any promise you make has a debt associated with it. We have this thing called promissory notes when you get a loan, a promissory note. What are you saying? I will make good on the debt. I will make it right. Just give me some time over months, over 30 many months, 30 million months, I will make good on this debt. Otherwise, this transaction that I've made has insufficient funds. I have nothing in me to, to, to make good on that. This man should have said, I can't do it. I am bankrupt. But instead, you know, he should have said, I, I'm trying to justify myself and I can't. I've come up empty. I'm not loving. Because if he said that, then Jesus would have come back and said, you know what? That's right. Only by the mercy of God. You thought you were unable. I am able. That's why I'm here. (laughs) I came to justify you. You know what that means? You know, all other religions, Confucius, Muhammad, the Buddha, they come and they say, I'm a teacher. I'm a prophet. Here's the law. Do it. And if you do it, you will ascend to a spiritual height in which you will never come down. Jesus never says that. Jesus never says that. Instead, he comes to justify. He says, you can't do that on your own. You can't love God on your own strength. You can't love your neighbor as yourself on your own. That's why I came. I came to justify. I came to live that perfect life, and then I came to justify you. My record becomes yours when I died for you, and that debt has been paid in full. Everything's been set straight. The loan has been paid off. Just believe. Just trust me. The sum of the Christian life is what? Stop doing things. 
to justify yourself, using money to justify you, using your looks to justify yourself, using your power to justify yourself, using your titles to justify yourself, using your relationships or your relationship to justify yourself, to say, yes, now I've arrived, now I'm complete. Stop doing that. Stop using those things to justify yourself because it's going to corrode your soul and you're going to be inadequate. You're always going to be comparing yourself with the next person. You're going to, instead of feeling ascended, you're going to start to descend. Instead of experiencing more potential in your life, your greater human potential, you're actually going to start to decline in human potential and freedom and joy. Remember the woman who wiped her feet with Jesus, uh, who wiped Jesus' hair with her feet, sacrificed a very, very expensive heirloom, and wiped Jesus' feet with her hair. What does Jesus say? She loves much. She loves much because she's been forgiven much. She's spiritually bankrupt, but I paid her debt. And as a result, that's why she did it. It came out of her. It just came out of her. Real Christian love is like that. It's incredibly unique. It doesn't begin until you realize how bankrupt you are in sin. But by the grace of God, you see, if you're a self-justifier, you're always going to be working. Just by, You're always going to be looking for lists, and you're always going to feel down because you can't make up for the, the debt. You can't make the debt up. You can't do it. So you're constantly working. You're constantly working to justify yourself. So even if you're loving your neighbor, you're on this great crusade to love other people, to love the city. You have tremendous love and compassion for the city. So you're going out there and you're serving them and you're doing all these things. You're really doing it to justify yourself. And so the dead eventually just grows and you get frustrated with other people because they're not joining you and you get frustrated because these loveless people that are over there and you're going out there and I just got to work harder and work harder and you feel that debt. The emptiness never fills. The emptiness never fills up. Somebody whom Christ loves, a Christian, is capable of a type of love that bears a certain quality that, has, that is unconditional, Tremendous power, tremendously free, no strings attached, incredibly dynamic, incredibly wise in the way they dispense their service and love. Anyone who's experienced that love understands that. If you know that you've been justified by, by grace through faith, it melts you, that power melts you, it moves you, it powers you, it humbles you. Real love starts. Real love starts. When you've been stunned into silence. I love that phrase. One of my favorite preachers says this. Real love starts when you've been stunned into silence by the love of Christ who has paid your debt. Here's, a, here's an illustration. One day, here, what I mean by that. One day, you have a friend. A friend of the opposite gender. It's got to be someone. That's the only way this illustration works. A friend of the opposite gender comes to you. Shows up and says, I paid a bill that you owe. I paid a huge bill that you owe. You, don't, you may not know this, but you owe back taxes from the IRS. You owe back taxes. And uh, you say, wow, thank you. You know, thanks a lot. But she says, no, 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 wait, wait a second, wait a second. You don't just owe back taxes. The back taxes go back 30 years. You've somehow gotten away with paying the IRS 30 years worth of your salary. 
but I paid it for you. I just, <laughs> I don't know, here, I don't know about you guys, I pay taxes to, I mail my taxes to Cincinnati, Ohio. So this person walked into Cincinnati and said, here's the debt, I want to pay it. Now, if it's small, you're going to say, thank you. Let me take you out to dinner or something like that. But what if it's 30 years of taxes that have been overlooked? Death and taxes. 30 years of taxes. The IRS is literally sitting in a car. The agents are ready to go in there and haul you away. But this person came in and said, no, I'm going to take care of the debt. One shot deal. And you say, why? I mean, you saved me from ruin. You saved me from from tremendous ruin. My life would have been over. And they say, you know what? You may not have known this. I've been trying to tell you for years, but I don't know how to tell you this. But I'm desperately in love with you. I've been desperately in love with you. And the thought of seeing you in jail, suffering, in shame, the thought of seeing your family suffering, the ultimate suffering and shame, I just couldn't bear to have you experience that. So I'd rather pay the debt for you. Wouldn't that get you? Wouldn't that move you? You tell me that wouldn't move you? Real love begins when you've been stunned speechless by the thought of Christ who paid the debt. You're amazed by that debt that's paid. You're amazed by the debt. You really you come to a realization of who you are and then the debt that's been paid. That's the heart of love. It's a response to that. Now, thirdly, what is it? What are the marks of love? The lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Jesus, be more specific because he doesn't get it. And now we get into the parable. Now we get into the parable. Here's this Jew who's on a road and he's beaten and he's robbed and he's left for dead. He's just lying on the road. He's left for dead. And what happens? Here's this priest and a Levite, and they pass by. They just pass him by, which is incredibly shocking. You know why? Because priests and Levites, Jesus intentionally puts two people who are incredibly moral and incredibly religious. And part of the irony is the fact that priests and Levites, that's their job, is to care for people like this. Jesus could have chosen any other type of person, but instead he chooses a priest and a Levite, people who give to the poor, people who distribute alms to the poor, but these people, they pass by, and they pass by in dramatic fashion. How do they pass by? They see this man lying on the ground, and they go all the way to the other side, and they walk. It's dramatic. There's lots of speculation as to why this priest or this Levite doesn't stop. They don't stop to help him out. There's lots of reasons why. You read any type of scholar and they have tremendous reasons as to why it could have happened, which means there are many reasons why it could have happened, but they pass by on the other side. In other words, they don't even want to come near to touch this person. Some, Some scholars say, well, because if they come near and by chance, if they try to help him and he's dead, this is a priest and a Levite. They become ceremonially unclean for touching a dead person, a dead body. And as a result, they can't be a priest. They can't be a Levite until they go through their ceremonial cleansing. They stop being who they are. But if you think about it more practically, think about what's going on. This man is traveling from Jerusalem, very religious area, to Jericho, a very irreligious area. Very dangerous path, very dangerous road. In fact, that road that leads from Jerusalem to Jericho was known to be a very dangerous, a treacherous journey. But here's this man alone traveling. Think about this. Imagine three in the morning, and you're walking through nice town. 
Three in the morning, you're jogging down Kelly Drive through Strawberry Mansion. You figured, uh, I'd want to make my life a little bit more exciting. You, drive, you, walk, you jog through Strawberry Mansion. Why is it that in Philadelphia, every nice neighborhood is named, it sounds good, every bad neighborhood, I mean, it sounds good. Nice town. Strawberry Mansion. I love strawberries, you know. But the thing is, like, you think, but it's terrible. These areas are dangerous. This man, imagine three in the morning, you're jogging, and you see this person, and, and the car's broken down. And, uh, you know, you're thinking, this is, please help me. And, and you're jogging, and you realize this is a very, very seedy area. Three in the morning, not your neighborhood. What do you do? Most likely, you're just going to pass by, right? It's too dangerous. You're going to pass by. Jesus puts this story on a stretch of road that everybody knew about. Jerusalem to Jericho. The priest and the Levite, they pass by on the other side because they're really wise. They're smart. They see this guy lying in a pool of blood and he seems like he's still alive, which means this probably just happened, which means the robbers are still around. So what do they do? They go to the other side and they pass by. And, you know, they're probably not even sure. They're probably justified. Well, I mean, what could I possibly do? I don't have anything on me. You know, I don't even have, you know, donkey or horse, to, you know, to get them back to safety. You know, not to mention I could get ceremonial and clean, all these kind of things. And then we have the Samaritan. The Samaritan in this story finds this Jew who's been beaten, who's been robbed. He's left for dead. And what does he do? He stops. And he takes care of this Jew. And he gives him medical care. You know, he, the wine and the oil. And, and he gives him his friendship, and he gives him financial support. He takes him to the shelter, an inn, and, and he has, allows him to recover there. And here's the magnitude to what the Samaritan has done. This is the real shock, right? The, the, the good Samaritan, he takes the man's life, a total stranger, into his own hands. He stops, and he helps him. He sacrifices, remember, he's headed somewhere. He stops. He sacrifices his schedule. He sacrifices his safety. He gives him the most concrete type of care. He touches the man. He bandages the man. He gets his hands dirty. He gives him medical treatment. And then he puts him on his donkey, his own donkey, right? Which means most likely he's walking. He's walking and he, and he takes him to this inn and he gives him two silver coins. The two silver coins most likely uh, is about two months worth of rent. Now, I don't care where you live. I don't care where this is. Two months' worth of anything is a lot. But he gives him two silver coins, uh, and that's two months' rent, and he says to the innkeeper, I'm going to pay you anything extra, whatever it takes until this person gets better, until I return. Now, you have to remember, this Samaritan is sacrificing his schedule. He's risking his life. He's getting dirty with this person. He gives concrete, costly care. He gives him shelter, and he's doing it. This is the shock. He's doing it for an enemy. Here's the shock. The priest and the Levite, one of his own, on the other side, passes by. But the Samaritan, who is his enemy, if you know anything about the history between Jews and Samaritans, they treated each other as enemies. Imagine North Korea and South Korea. Imagine the Soviet Union in the 1980s with the United States. These people were bitter enemies in terms of ideology, in terms of theology. Very, very bitter. And so they treated each other as enemies. They, in other words, this man, in any normal context, if he saw a Jew lying in a pool of blood, he would have said he probably deserved it, and he would have walked away. 
If it was the other way around, same thing. They would have just walked away. John chapter 4, Jesus is at a well. A Samaritan woman comes to him, right? And uh, he starts talking to the Samaritan woman. The Samaritan woman is surprised. Why? He says, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you talk to me? He's talking to this woman. The disciples later on show up and it says they were shocked to see that he's talking to this woman. Why? Because they're Jewish. That's a Samaritan that he's talking to. How could he possibly do this? And yet, the Samaritan's love here was risky, and it was dirty, and it was costly, and it was unacceptable, completely transcends his own culture and what they believed of these people. And yet Jesus deliberately uses two racial groups, complete bitter enemies, to answer who is your neighbor. What is the limit to being a neighbor? What's the answer? There is no limit. He uses these people to answer the question, when am I called to be a neighbor? He says, whenever you see a person in need, anytime, whether it impacts your schedule or not, anytime, how much am I supposed to sacrifice? How far am I supposed to go? This person risked his life. He got dirty. He showed as much concrete care as possible. Love is costly. Haddon Robinson, another great preacher, professor of preaching at Gordon-Conwell Theological, well, former professor of preaching at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. He's retired now, long retired. Probably one of the greatest communicators that I've ever heard says it this way. Your neighbor is anyone whose needs you see, whose needs you are able to meet. Your neighbor is anyone whose needs you see, whose needs you are able to meet. Why does Jesus give such an extreme example here? He's saying the mark of a heart that's been changed by the grace of God inevitably leads to works, deeds of compassion that extend out to some of the neediest, most broken people that you will ever know who don't care for God, who don't acknowledge God, who aren't even grateful when you give the care, who may not even know that you gave it. It could be the kind of person that is the furthest away from you demographically, socially, physically, in every category. To stop, for this person to stop, it could have been fatal for him, perhaps. But the Samaritan stops, risks his life, sacrifices everything. You know, when you're stopping to risk your life for somebody, you're sacrificing everything you've got at that moment in time. Incredible sacrifice, costly love. To stop will be fatal, and yet costly love. But I know something about this family. They're irresponsible with their money. They're just going to blow it away. They're foolish. They're selfish. They're reckless. They don't deserve this. Jesus gives us a character who absolutely would want, when he sees this person lying in a pool of blood, he would say, this person deserved it. Absolutely chose a person who would think that way. This person deserves it. I'm going to read you an excerpt uh, from... You know, just to kind of set this context, in 1960, the Israeli Mossad, they tracked down Nazis, people who were part of the Third Reich. And one of the great captures in 1960 was Adolf Eichmann. They found him in Argentina in his hideaway home. And Adolf Eichmann, if you know anything about him, he was one of the masterminds of the concentration camps, the concept of the final solution. That was Adolf Eichmann. 
So he was, system, he was responsible for the systematic extermination of millions of people, the Holocaust in Germany in World War II. And so they went out, you know, what they did was the Mossad went out and they basically scoped these people out to make sure that these people were the people to bring them back to trial. And so uh, the, the man who architected this capture was by, a man by the name of Peter Malkin, okay? And I'm gonna, it's a very long point to express a very small point, but I felt like this is, this is what we're talking about here so you understand the difference between this Jew and this Samaritan, okay? As Malkin closed in on the capture, he covertly monitored the comings and goings of Adolf Eichmann in his home and noticed a regular routine. Every day when Eichmann came home from work, he was excitedly greeted by a young boy who threw his arms up in the air and welcomed him. Malkin would often think of his own little nephew when he saw this affectionate reception night after night from the little boy. He was taken as well by by Eichmann's tender response. You know, his nephew was, was one of the people who was exterminated. He was taken as well by Eichmann's tender response, having only thought of him as one of the cold-hearted architects of human extermination. In other words, how can this man, who is so cold-hearted, be so embracing and tender and warm to this child? And so when they finally caught him, one private moment between Malkin and Eichmann may have spelled the greatest blow to Malkin himself, leaving him more heartbroken than ever. First, he wanted desperately to know how How was it possible that an ordinary human being could orchestrate such untold evil and feel no guilt about it whatsoever? But there was a second thing, a very personal and nagging question. Malkin had found out that that little boy who so enthralled Eichmann was his own six-year-old son, born to him in Argentina. Malkin thought that he he had all the emotional weight needed to pose the question and raise it at the most opportune moment when Eichmann spoke passionately of how much he missed his son. He said, my my sister's boy, my favorite playmate, he was your son's age, also blonde, also blue-eyed, just like your son, and you killed him. He waited for an explanation, confident that Eichmann could make the extension and feel with Malkin the way he felt about his nephew. Eichmann paused, and then, with complete indifference, muttered, But your nephew was Jewish, wasn't he? The Samaritan is walking down this road and sees this man that he bitterly hates, has no connection with whatsoever. And Jesus says, this is the demonstration of love. This is love. Those are the marks of love. Well, what's the intent? What's our motivation to love? Fourth point. Jesus is saying, you are supposed to help people even though you ordinarily hate the sight of these people. Even though these people brought it on themselves. You are supposed to help them to the point where that some of their burden, some of their mess, some of their dirt falls on you. Some of their blood gets on your clothes. So that to some degree, you experience some of the difficulty that they're experiencing. Jesus is saying, I want you to look out there at people you would ordinarily hate, despise, people who don't believe what you believe, people, you know... uh, I want you to meet the needs, their needs with such concrete force, sacrificial love, such cost to the degree that it would astonish them. 
to the degree that it would shock them. So when, I want you to look at these people. How do you do it? What's the motive? Because when you look at somebody without resources, when they smell bad, they don't look good, they don't even look right in the head, they are completely unlovely, absolutely nothing attractive about them. If you have been saved by grace, you are looking at yourself. That's the intent. Because you at that moment will be able to connect with your place and the Father who looked at you and did not pass by and saved and rescued you and covered over you. You would know immediately what you look like to Jesus. That's what you look like to the Father if he just passed by, lying in a pool of blood, smelly, stinky, bankrupt, robbed, unless Jesus covered over you with his righteousness unless Jesus saved you and rescued you and poured into you his spirit that shapes you and transforms you. Only by an act of God's free grace could this happen. Think about it. This Jew, he's on a road. If the Jew was on the road and the Samaritan was on the horse, this illustration would not work. You'd say this would never happen. This, would never, this Jew would say, I would never happen. I would hate this guy. I would kick him as, he, as I walk by. You know? But what if you were on the road? That's why it works, because he's a Jew. What if you were on the road? What if you were left for dead? What if your only hope, lying dead, is your most, think about the person that you hate the most. There's, everybody's got that one person, right, that you're just like, I'm not like that person. I would never be like that person. Think about that person walking down the street. You're lying in a pool of blood. Would you want that person to help you? You know you would want, you need that person's help. Because no one else, your own family walked by. But what if this person is willing to offer the help that you need? Would you take it? Of course you'd take it. If you were wise, you'd take it. You would take it. Only if that happened to you would you get up and start to look at everybody differently. You'd say, I was saved by somebody that I utterly despised. I didn't even know. I didn't even acknowledge. I was never grateful to. I rejected him time and time again. I never wanted to ever walk into his house. But this person came and saved my life. The expert in the law asks, who is my neighbor? Jesus turns it around and says, who was a neighbor to you? Who was a neighbor to this person? And the lawyer, look at the lawyer. He couldn't even say the word, the Samaritan. What does he say? The one who showed him mercy. That's the intent. Mercy. Experiencing mercy, demonstrating mercy. Everyone who's come to the gospel, everyone who's embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ knows that at any point in their lives, we've lived our lives trying to justify ourselves. Every one of us, that's why we want rules. That's why the rules make it easy. But that is not going to shape your heart. Where's the power? Last point, where's the power? You made it through. Where's the power? The Bible teaches that whatever you try to justify yourself with, if it's not God, it's going to master you. It's going to enslave you. 
It's going to beat you up. It's going to fill you with fears. It's going to fill you with discouragement. And over the years, if you just pile that on over and over and again, eventually you are the one that's on the road. You are the one that's going to be riddled with sin, completely immobile, dead, left for dead spiritually. You need a neighbor who's going to come and save you. Because nobody else can. But you need somebody who's, who's foreign and yet has everything that you need. Here's this person that you treated as an enemy all your life, but who's so loving and will not leave you for dead. The gospel says Jesus came into the world. And though the world did not know him, though he, though he, though he was of them, right? Listen to, uh, read the, uh, the word of encouragement. He came to that which was his own, and, and his own did not receive him. Jesus came into the world and onto our road. And though we rejected him time and time again, he, we owe, he owes us nothing but rejection. He's, and yet he's our creator. Because he's our creator, he owes nothing but rejection because we rejected him. But when he came to our place in the road, he had compassion on us. Verses 33 to 34, the word pity. The word pity. He had compassion on him. It's used... It's used to describe the emotional character, the emotional quality of Jesus more than any other word in the Bible. Did you know that? It means that when Jesus saw us, he's not sitting there and saying, that guy never gets it. That's not what he does. When he saw us on the road, he knew that he wouldn't just be risking his life. He knew that it was going to cost his life. And yet he did it. He knew that he wasn't just going to be touching somebody who's dying, rendering him unclean. He would die and become unclean. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know what that means? Jesus became rejected Jesus became rejectable, unacceptable. He became the smelly, the stinky. He became the despised and in despair. He became the one left for dead on the road. He became the one. He took the road of the Calvary on the cross, left for dead by God. God had passed over Jesus. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, yes, all these people, they passed over me. My friends, they passed by. You passed by, and now I am left for dead. I'm left for dead, cosmically left for dead. He didn't just risk his life. He died. He didn't just touch the dead. He died. He became the dead. Why? So that we, helpless, dying, dead spiritually, will be raised up in him. That's the power. If the gospel has gripped your life, that's the power. How can you pass by? Because you, were not, you did not deserve any of this. It's only by grace. Only by grace. And if that grace, an act of, surely an act of God's free grace shaped your life, then surely then you would be shaped to show acts of free grace to other people's lives. That's what we would do. Jesus covered you with his righteousness. He took on your brokenness. He became the unsightly one. He became bloody. He became rejected. Jesus, the king of the Jews. 
became as a Samaritan, foreign and enemy to God. On the cross, he became the most poor, the most unattractive, the most foreign person, even foreign to, the, to God. People spit on him. He was beaten up. He was smelly. They took his clothes. He was naked. He was robbed. They cast lots with his clothing. He was stripped naked, unrecognizable, stripped of everything, no one to help. And yet God himself passed by for you. That's the power to love. Jesus says to the lawyer, you want to know the love, the kind of love that God requires? Here it is. Anybody can love somebody next to them. It doesn't cost too much to love somebody next to you. But unless your heart has been radically changed by the gospel, you will not be able to have a radical love that you can demonstrate. It is not in you. That's the impossibility of love. It is not in you. Only a heart that's been radically changed by the gospel can love genuinely because you're not using it to justify yourself. It's a heart that's been transformed. The Spirit of God rests in you, works in you, is active in you to open your eyes to see how impossible it is, how broken you are in the way that you do love. To point you to Christ, the ultimate, the greater Samaritan, foreign to us, reached down, and shaped us, and saved us, and nursed us back to health, and continues to work in our lives. Unless you're crushed by the magnitude of the law, you're never going to be humble to receive what Jesus has offered us. Can you do that? Will you do that? As a church, this sermon is probably about a year early. But it's a reminder to us As a church, why are we planted here in East Falls? We could have planted. It would have been cheaper to plant out there. Well, first of all, if we planted out there, you you may not be here. But the thing is, we are planted here and taking that sometimes arduous journey to East Falls, struggling to find parking. Why do we do it? Because the gospel has compelled us to get into the community and love. It's easy to love people who live next to us. It's impossible without the grace of God working in our lives to love the community that we have no business dealing with on a day-by-day basis. That's why we're here. My My prayer is that your prayer will be that that vision and those values would grip you all by grace. Spirit applies it in faith, through faith, all by grace. Will you continue to journey with us then in this? Let's pray.